At the very beginning of uh, of his ministry, um, Jesus stood before a congregation of people and uh, opened the scriptures and read uh, from the prophet Isaiah. And uh, this is this is what he read. What we know now is uh, Isaiah chapter sixty one. It says, "The spirit of the sovereign." This should be up here. Oh, it is. Look at that magic. And by magic, I mean him. Um, we call him magic. I don't know if you know that. Maybe that's just me. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And this is one of my favorite bits of scripture ever, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The very first thing he did, he stood before a congregation of people and said, I am for you if your life is busted up. Uh, I was sharing uh, beforehand uh, with David that in our sort of parallel histories in our last year and a half or so, not even last year and a half, two of our, we have a small congregation of about a hundred folks in our church in California. And, um, two of our young men in the last year have developed brain tumors. Uh, and two out of a hundred is a pretty significant chunk and having to, to wrestle with, uh, well, not even wrestle with, but have uh, watching the Lord in his people and through his people draw near to folks in their suffering. And so, Knowing that you're a congregation of people who have seen the Lord draw near to to you uh, in your suffering and to your people in your suffering. When things are rough and our days when things are darker, uh, the Lord draws near. Can I get amen? He shows up when it gets tough. I will ask for some amens as I go along. So prep yourself. You want to just have a couple amens on hand. Thank you very much. He's ready to go. There's always one. Uh... And so this description of life, of you know, of being brokenhearted, of being poor and, and being oppressed, however it is, at some point in our in our lives, over the course of our weeks and months and years, we will find ourselves in a position where this describes us a little bit. There's a population in this world, a large population of people, uh, for whom this is an everyday description. And while we we all deal with difficult stuff, there's a crowd of people in our world, a large crowd of people, for whom everyday life is much more difficult than we can possibly imagine. What Compassion International does is in 27 countries worldwide, they partner with local churches to reach into the lives of exactly that crowd of folks. We also know that when when it all goes down and things get rough, the folks who suffer most, specifically economically, are kids, the children. Um, and so... When we talk about the least of these, we're not just talking about a large people group who get cast aside by governments and by uh, and by culture. We're talking about children who didn't make a decision to be born where they were born. They didn't move to that place. They were born into that place. And so compassion through these local churches in 27 countries worldwide, through sponsors like yourself, has reached in the lives of one million children and said, we're here for you because we know that Jesus has a heart for you in your busted upness. Um, which is a biblical term. I'll give you the Greek later. Um, no, I won't. That's not true at all. Um, and that's the direction I'm headed today. I want to share about Christ's heart uh, for the broken, Christ's heart uh, for specifically for the poor. I think it is no mistake uh, that when he, in the very beginning of what he said, 
said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for I've been anointed to preach, to preach good news to the poor. Uh, I don't think that's a figurative poor. I think he's talking about the poor. And so before I go any further, if you guys would please uh, pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your heart uh, and for the way you've consistently uh, and faithfully shown up in our lives when we have needed you. Um, and what a, what, a, what a beautiful moment that has been for us when things have been difficult, when things have been dark, that you have shown up and our hopes have been realized. Um, and so in light of that, may this morning be a celebration of your goodness. That we would be a people who know that you are better than what is wrong with the world. And there's no darkness so dark, there's no brokenness so broken where you are not Lord and you are not King. And your resurrection power doesn't have power over it. You are King, you are Lord, and your resurrection power is the source of all new life. Amen? Amen. There's a 13-year-old girl a few years ago won a singing competition in um, in Portland, Oregon. And uh, the, the prize for winning the singing competition was uh, the opportunity opportunity to uh, sing the national anthem in front of uh, at the Portland Trailblazers basketball game. This is the worst prize in the history of giving out prizes. She's 13. Like she, you know, just won a 13-year-old singing contest. You're going to put her t- in front of 20,000 rabid basketball fans. And we all know NBA, you know, NBA fans are huge supporters of the arts. Um, and so she walks out the, the day of the, the she walks out in the middle of the floor. Here's the, actually here's the linchpin. Is that it wasn't just in front of it was an, it was the nationally televised game that that Saturday. No pressure. Um, she walks out to the middle of the floor. You can find footage of this on, on YouTube and, and she, and she gets to the microphone and you can, I mean, there are times when someone's nervous and you're like, oh, I couldn't tell. You could tell. She walked out and she's adjusting the microphone, getting it set and she's had her hair all nice and hairsprayed and her whole hair shaking. And, uh, and she starts to sing. And if you've done any performance stuff that like, uh, when you're nervous, when you talk, your talking voice goes up. Well, your singing voice does too. You like, you, your throat tightens and you start. So she starts singing the national anthem in a register that she can't finish it in. Now, I've sung the national anthem in front of people. I know, that, like, you, you gotta be careful where you start because you, like, there's some notes at the end that are in the stratosphere. And so, so she starts and it's the moment she starts, she, she knows she's too high. She goes, oh, and she's, she's like, oh no, I can't finish in that register. And she starts looking for other notes. Now she's like trying to move the song into a different register. And so she's like six notes in three. And it's like, oh, say, just awful. Well, now like the cardinal rule of performance, like you don't want to be thinking about what you're doing. You just want to kind of be in the moment, just doing what you're doing. Now you're thinking, the problem is you start thinking about things and you're forgetting other things like, oh, I don't know, the lyrics to the national anthem. And so she starts going and she, she misses the lyrics and then she's missing. Now she's thinking about the lyrics and just a train wreck. And you can hear the buzz going around in the, in the room. This, you know, folks are like, <laughs> and, uh, and because it was on NBC and we know how just compassionate and wonderful the national news networks are to people in tragedy, uh, Full facial zoom, and uh, just right up. Then you can see like the makeup starting to streak, and she's the tears, and you're like, "Thank you, NBC." And as they zoom in, you see this great big black hand come in around the corner and rest on her shoulder. Maurice Cheeks, the coach of the Portland Trailblazers at the time, had stepped off the bench, he moved from the sideline, walked to the middle of the floor, wrapped his arm around this girl, leaned in the microphone, and started singing the national anthem. 
mean, that is a beautiful moment. Except, <laughs> Mo can't sing. <laughs> and so, brother can't find a note. She can't find the words or a note. It was a hor- it was like a cat in a blender singing the Ave Maria. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible sound. But by the end of the song, there were 20,000 basketball fans standing on their feet, screaming the national anthem at the top of their lungs. And I begin this morning with that picture because I think at some point in your life, at some point in, in any moment, you are somewhere in that story. Whether you're the person standing in the middle of the floor and, and, and you can't remember the lyrics to life, much less the notes, and you need someone to move to the middle of the floor and wrap their arm around you, or you're someone who's standing on the sideline, and this is usually the place we're in. And we're thinking to ourselves, I'm not a very good singer. But maybe you've talked about this. The Lord does not call the qualified. Can I, can I get an amen? He qualifies the called. He says, I want you to go do this. And you're like, are you kidding me right now? And he says, just go and trust me that I'm going to do this thing through you. So it's never about the fact that we've got our junk together. It's always about the fact that our God is good and we follow through on his goodness. In 27 countries worldwide, one million children are sponsored by people who are underqualified to do the work. They've been called and they're proclaiming the goodness of God. They're not proclaiming the financial stability of their lives because the American dollar is not the source of our lives or our strength. The grace of God is the source of our lives and our strength. Child sponsorship and the work of justice and the work of compassion is not a matter of there are a bunch of people who need us. It's a matter of saying our God is better than this junk that they've sold us. Our God is better than the world proclaims and we're going to prove that by trusting his grace to accomplish this great work through us. So I begin with that notion of coming alongside, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna share a song that I, I, I covered for the most recent record uh, that I did that I think is a great picture of what it looks like to come alongside and wrap your arms around someone who needs you to be there. Don't feel any obligation to sing along with these because uh, you probably won't know them, and that will get awkward mainly for me. Uh, I mean, bless your heart, but uh, so this is a. This is a wonderful Patty Griffin song called When It Don't Come Easy. Red lights are flashing on the highway I wonder if we're gonna ever get home I wonder if we're gonna ever get home tonight The water's getting rough Your best intentions may not be enough I wonder if we're gonna ever get home tonight So we can break down I try not and find you Try to remind you Stay by you When it don't come easy When it don't come easy I don't know nothing except change will come after you, what we do is undone. Time gets a moving from our core to our I wonder if we're gonna ever get home. 
This was not like the plan. I did not grow up thinking I want to become a singer, songwriter, and travel and speak and play. Like I had great aspirations to be an NFL running back. And uh, thank you. Uh, that was mainly hampered by my inability to grow. Uh, so I did some theater. And you know you're bad at football when you start doing theater. Um but I, my career path was, was varied. I, I was actually on, on Young Life staff for uh, for a span of time. Do you guys know Young Life? A few people uh, for the, it's youth ministry for kids who are afraid of church. Uh, that's how I met Christ, and um, you know, because you know, in, in college, I'm you know, you're wrestling with the big questions. You know, like who who am I, and where's the big money, and uh, youth ministry was my answer to that question. Uh, and I was raking it in too. I was like 400, 450 bucks a month, uh, with Young Life. And, uh, sort of in order, I was on staff for like four years too. So in order to supplement my, my exhaustive income with, with, uh, with Young Life, I started teaching because if the big money's not in youth ministry, it's gotta be in public education. Uh, my parents thought that was a great plan. I think, I believe what they said was see you at home. Uh, 
while I was studying to become a teacher, uh, part of how my heart has kind of moved in this direction, uh, I, I ran across a series of books by a guy named Jonathan Kozel. And Kozel writes about the patterns of poverty specifically as they, as they play out in the United States. And this book, Savage Inequalities, was, was required, required reading for the credentialing program. And, um, he spent, he spent time in major metropolitan areas of the country, uh, Buies Creek and, uh, uh, Manhattan and, uh, very similar. And uh, and he would be in one side of town. He was in Philadelphia. He was in Chicago. Uh, anyways, and he'd be in one side of town in this beautiful brand new school, usually high schools. New track and the new computers, the whole nine. Predominantly white campus. And then he would drive across town to, to an area of, uh, of the city, usually in the same district. that was a predominantly black, Hispanic area. And he would tell these stories about... Like kids meeting in classrooms where they, they had to line the seats up around the edges of the classroom because when it rained, the water would pool up in the ceilings and it would not only drip, but sometimes the ceilings would come down. And they couldn't meet in the hallway because the paint that was peeling off the walls in the hall was exuding a chemical that was complicating their asthma, which had been severely complicated by the fact that the feeder junior high school they went to, there had been a, a, a pipe broken, a few pipes broken underneath the playground. And the kids were breathing in these fumes and getting sick all the time. Turns out by the time the city actually got out there about a decade later, uh, when they tested the soil, it was literally toxic and they had to condemn the playground. And it wasn't just like one story. It was story after story. East St. Louis, Chicago, New York, like over and over. And I was struck by a few things. Um, he, he coins this phrase in, in the book, uh, de facto segregation, that, that we're past a place in culture for the most part, thank God almighty, where some nitwit can say that because someone is not of a certain culture, because particularly someone is not white, they deserve less in life uh, and get away with that public publicly. We're not past a place, says Kozel, that somehow in the back of our minds we know of these great inequalities, we know of these great injustices, whether they're in our neighborhoods or, or the, you know, the stories we hear about Darfur or whatever it is. And something in the back of our mind simply says, isn't that just the way it is? Something in our mind just simply settles. It's not a matter of saying, I don't care. It's just a matter of something in our mind just says, isn't that just the way the world works? And I was struck by this. First and foremost, that I was someone who saw the world that way. And I knew of some of, and I'd you know, read and heard about these great injustices in my own world. And in the, and I, in my mind, I thought, well, isn't that just kind of how things go? But this is the other thing that struck me. As I was someone at that period of my life was learning about the heart of God and Jesus Christ was this. This might be the most important thing I say all morning. God never looks on his world and says that's just the way it is. It never happens. When stuff goes down in your life, you know full well. God doesn't say, that's just too bad for you now, isn't it? God has compassion on those who are broken. For an example, somewhere between every day, today included, somewhere between three and three and five hundred young men and women, kids usually under the age of 15, in Las Vegas, Nevada, will be bought or sold in the black market sex slave trade. Every single day, somewhere between 300 and 500 kids. I just do not believe that God looks on a statistic like that and says, isn't that just the way it is? I believe his heart breaks for those kids because those are his daughters. Those are his six-year-old, eight-year-old, 12-year-old daughters and sons. His heart is broken for the things that break the world. Um, and so I, the more I look at statistics like this, you know, the majority of the world live on less than a dollar. Ha- like more than half the world lives on, lives on less than a dollar a day. 
Now there are six billion people who live on the planet, and so the rest of the, the rest of these the, the statistics, one billion people living undernourished, which means even those who are eating enough in terms of you know food and filling their stomachs don't know what they're supposed to eat, and they're, and they're not eating towards health. A billion people. One billion people living got access to clean drinking water. This one blows my mind. I mean, I take like a half-hour shower without even thinking about it. And I'm just in there like enjoying the warmth. A bi- they can't even get to clean drinking water. So they're drinking water from, from these dirty, dirty wells, with water with cholera in it. And if you're one of the many, many millions of people who are living with HIV and you drink a cup of water with cholera in it, you're finished. Billion people living on access to basic medical. We're having we're having a real serious debate in this country about about medical care, and there's a billion people on the planet who we're talking about folks who can't they can't get to. We, we sat down with this 17 year old girl who who had given birth in the middle of the night in her tiny little place. It's a 15 minute hike up this hill to her place. It's two miles from the nearest bus stop. It was 10 miles on the bus to the nearest town to a clinic that was only open periodically. It took her an hour and a half to even get to the bus. And then she rode the bus. She got to the clinic, and she was she you know she knew it was time to give birth. Apparently, women know these things, and uh, or so I've been told. And uh, by the time she got to the clinic, the clinic wasn't open. She had to wait for several hours for the clinic to open. And finally, when and there were complications, she gave birth via C-section. She was there for a matter of hours because she could not pay. They put her back on the bus. She rode 10 miles back. She walked two miles to her village and the 25-minute hike got back to her place. I think that's – and these are not like just some stories. Like this is over and over. A billion people is the, is a sixth of the planet. I believe God's heart breaks for these things. And this is the one that just, just ruins me is – Five million times each year, thirty thousand times a day. I mean, thirty thousand even like breaking five million down to thirty thousand is a difficult task, but it's still it's hard to connect with thirty thousand kids a day. So let's just put it in this perspective: in the time that we are sitting here in this church service, somewhere between seven hundred fifty and one thousand children, not adults, children seventeen and under, will die because they didn't have enough to eat. And that's every day. That's every hour. God's heart breaks for these things because it's not just the way it is. These are his kids. And so here I am at the time I started learning these things and I'm like, so what am I supposed to do? I'm like a 20 year old kid. You know, like I'm making 400 bucks a month. What am I supposed to do about this? How, how am I supposed to make an impact on this? a billion people, 30,000 kids a day? What is that like? I hope these things are overwhelming to us because they should be. Can I get an Amen. I mean, the brokenness of the world should be overwhelming to us so that we would become a people who have to depend on the grace of God. So here's some things, I, and this is where the morning t- turns a corner. Uh, working in, in this field and, and, and at being an advocate, I run into people who, who, who do this work and, and, and some friends of mine who started an organization that plant clean water wells in Africa. For the, the vast majority of this billion people who live without access to clean drinking water live in, in sub-Saharan Africa. So these folks have, have started this program where they build clean water wells in these villages. Well, building a well can be a pretty expensive venture. So what they've, they've done some, some math to figure out what does it actually cost for an American person, for, for me, to provide clean water for African folks. And I think there's a slide here for this. Look at the number here. One dollar provides clean drinking water for an African person for an entire year. A year's supply. This is for an adult African. 
$1 provides clean drinking water for an African person for an entire year. This is not a matter of us feeling so bad and so guilty and we have so much. This is a matter of us embracing the fact that we have been blessed by God. We live in a culture that desires, maybe more so than anything else, to steal from us that sense of blessedness and replace it with a sense of entitlement and lack. That it's always about what we don't have. It's always about the next thing. It's always about the fact that you are not at this level. It's never, ever about the fact that you have enough because your God is enough. And he has not only sustained you, but he's blessed you so that you can become a blessing to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family. And maybe some child who grew up in Rwanda has never had a shot. That we've been blessed. Again, this is a matter of a proclamation of the goodness of God, not just the filling of needs. And so with Compassion International, it's a much larger program. It's bigger than just water. A dollar, it's a dollar twenty-three. And I'm not a math guy, so the fact that I broke this down to a dollar twenty-three cents, like I bow like to myself. Like that was fantastic. I got a calculator out. I was an English major. I feel so incredibly accomplished. Uh $1.23 cents a day, it adds up to thirty-eight dollars a month. Um and it provides not just if you, I think there's a slide there's another slide here um, the, the next slide should have economic physical social uh, emotional and spiritual compassion like I said works only in, in, they will only set up shop at the local church so that whatever compassion does has the, has the name of Christ written all over it so the work of God is done by the people of God who are indigenous to that place and it's not just a bunch of Caucasians flying and like we've got this thing we've got it taken care of because that always works out so well um but instead, the, 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 the work of God is done by the people of God who have grown up in that place. Kids grow up in community, so they're surrounded by their friends. They're in a local church because you can't live life by yourself. You and I both know that. They're taken care of economically. They're taken care of physically. Well, they're, they're not only just eating, but they're learning what they're supposed to eat. Um, and every day, every day of the program, they're hearing about the love of Jesus Christ and they're hearing about the gospel. A message that is foreign to a much larger percentage of the world than we would think, uh, especially in light of their circumstances. It's a dollar a day, uh, and the question I, I I'm beginning to ask is not so much can I afford it, but whether or not it's what I want to spend my life on. Because the truth of the matter is, I'm going to spend myself on something. I'm going to spend my life on something. I'm going to spend my money on something. My money's going to go somewhere. And I'm going to make certain sacrifices to accommodate for certain things. I want to have television, so I'm going to have to make certain accommodations over here, so I'll have to stop eating bread. Things like this. Decisions I might have made in college. Uh, so what am I, in terms of investing my life and spending myself, the question, and, and there's a song that goes to this, this is why I'm still holding the guitar, is when I'm finished spending my life, when I am done, when I die, will I be finished? Well, I have spent myself in a way that I should because we're all going to die. Can I get an amen? And now that's an uplifting thought. How was church? It was kind of a bummer. Uh, apparently, we're all going to die. That was all he had to say, really. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, but when we are done, the question isn't whether or not we're going to die, but will we have lived completely uh, by the end of that life? And so this is a song that for me is a reflection of that and a commitment to being done when I'm done. Will I spend the whole night fighting, fighting with some ghost? When the break of morning found me, I both won and lost. 
question isn't are you going to suffer anymore what will it have meant when you are through the question isn't are you going to die you're going to die will you be done living when you do and I spent Day running, trying to catch the sun. When the darkness overtook me, all oh, my running made me strong. You see, the question isn't, are you gonna suffer anymore? What will it have meant? You are through. The question isn't all you gonna die, you're gonna die. Will you be to living when you do? So run till you cannot take a single step in strength. Then crawl on your hands and knees, lay your hands and knees, they We'll bring me you call to carry you back home again. See the question is and are you gonna suffer anymore? What will it have meant when you are through? The question is and are you gonna die? You're gonna die. Will you be done living when you're too? Will you be done living when you're wrap it up here in a second one of the one of the questions that we get pretty consistently it's a good question is how do i know like my mind if i'm going to give you i'm going to give compassion i'm going to sponsor child's dollar a day how do i know that's going where it goes where it should go and i'm, I'm going to answer that question but i'll preface by saying this i think it's a healthy question to ask so long as a question we're asking of more than just our churches and our charitable organizations if we're going to be concerned about where our money is spent and where our money goes, let's be conscious of that on a broader scale and not just reserve it for folks who are trying to do good works. Can I get an amen on that? Let's have a consistent ethic uh, instead of just a you know an excuse. Um, it's I think at this point it's it's eighty three cents 80, between eighty three and eighty five cents to the dollar goes directly to the program your child is in. That's one way I can answer that question. The other way I can answer the question is the, the Wall Street Journal did a, a research study of 6,000 uh, NGOs and, and nonprofits uh, and ranked them according to their their fiscal responsibility. And Compassion was ranked in the top 10 among 6,000 uh, uh, NGOs in the United States. And um, West Stafford, who's the president of, uh, of Compassion, was, was honored by by this. But what he said was <laughs> just... Y'all need to meet Wes. Wes is an incredible guy. He said, that's an honor. I certainly wish there were more Christian organizations in the top 25. Um, that's the kind of guy Wes is. Um, 
The other way I can answer the question is there were last year there were over four thousand sponsors met their children, like went to countries and sat down and hung out with their kids. My wife and I we sponsor five children, uh, and we've met two of the, two of our kids. Uh, uh, recently we were in Africa. I think there are a couple pictures. Uh, these are some, all the kids you'll see here in these pictures are, are, are sponsored kids. Uh, they have sponsors, which is part of why they're smiling. Uh, this is a group of, of girls that are part of a choir that literally they got, they found out it was my wife's birthday, September 6th last year. And they literally, they ran and they surrounded her and sang happy birthday to her in Swahili. My wife is like a puddle. It's just, just, it was like, how do you deal with that? Um, this, this is another project in, in Kenya, and you're just not supposed to have favorites. But little dude in the back with no teeth. Are you kidding me right now? If you go to the next slide, uh, I'm in this picture. I'm the white one. Uh, brother here was in like a lot of pictures that day. He would he would stand on the outside and wait till you were right about to take the picture and then <laughs> photobombing. And uh, he's a beautiful thing. So this is my gorgeous wife. I totally scored. And... Um, and in between us is Zablon Almondi, who's a, who's in this picture is 18 years old, and that's right, I tower over my sponsored child, uh, and I take great pride in that. Um, we've been sponsoring him since we got married for sort of a little over 10 years. My wife and I just celebrated our 10th anniversary uh, in August, and you can clap later. Um, but uh, and just the connection we have, this boy, he for the last six years has signed these letters. Thank you for your support, love your son Zablon. And we sat down with this kid. I lost my dad to, to suicide a number of years ago uh, and um, over issues I can talk to you about another point. But so dad stuff like gets me. And so the whole idea of this this boy calling himself a son like, oh, like every letter I get is just it's a reminder of the incredible blessing and goodness of God. Uh, each When you sponsor a child with compassion, by the way, uh, it's what's called the one to one principle. There's nowhere else in the world. So as, as a matter of fact, like. Like Suresh Singh, who's in India, and I think you guys have a partnership with some folks who've worked in India. And this is the only place this packet is. So when you sponsor a child, that is your relationship, unless you choose to share it with someone. Um, so you write letters back and forth, and then they keep these letters. We sat down with Zablon, and dude had everything we had ever sent to him in like binders in order. And we were like talking about stuff that we've been talking about for ten years. We connect over foreign policy. It's a beautiful thing, and. uh just like sitting down, and it wasn't like meeting some kid. It was he was a he's ours. He's a member of the family, uh, and it's it has just rearranged our lives. And so I, I can tell you know I've been there and I've seen the program. But I'm I'm going to close with with this story uh, in terms of meeting kids. Go ahead and leave this picture up. Well, you can you can go there. This is this is Richmond, uh, and I'm going to tell you I, I met Richmond in in, uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He was going to tell his story to a room full of college students, and we sat backstage, and I got a little bit more. Detail from Richmond. Richmond is born and raised in um, northern Uganda, which is one of the most violent parts of the world. Uh, they grew up hand to mouth, like a lot of folks in in Uganda do. Uh, where day to day, you just didn't know what you were going to eat or if you're going to be able to eat. You didn't know if dad was going to find work. Uh, development over there in terms of industry is horrendous. There's just been bad government after bad government. There's an organization, a group, a rebel group called the Lord's Resistance Army uh, that has rebelled against the government, and they're terrible, terrible people. Um, they literally they move from village to village, and you've heard about child soldiering. These are the men who do this. Uh, as they come into villages, they'll burn villages down. They will kill the older men. They will take the younger girls um, for, for sex slaves, and they will, and they will brainwash these 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old boys to carry around AK-57s. 
And they have this army of, uh, of boys. Horrible people. So they moved in this village and, and, and Richmond and watched his father shot and killed right in front of him. And his, and, and late in the night, his mom and his sister and he took off. And for weeks, they were wandering the streets of northern Uganda, these dirt roads, trying to find a place that the LRA was not present. It took weeks. Weeks without eating, if you're a six-year-old, seven-year-old boy, is life-threatening. He says he remembers watching his older sister trying to chase this banana truck down the road and she just like stumbled and fell face down in the dirt and passed out. And he said, right there and then, as a tiny boy, I recognized that this was what, if this was all life was about, then I had given up. I was done. I, no more. And that's the heart of poverty. It's not a matter of not having stuff. It's about the fact that it reaches into the kid's life and says, you don't matter. If you mattered to someone, someone would care for you. More to the point, if you mattered to God, God would care for you. Very clearly, in light of your circumstances, you must not matter. And so this little boy gave up. Well, as things go, it, t- it turns out that he gave up on a road right next to a village where Compassion International started a project with a local church. And his mom, not knowing anything about Compassion, no background in faith at all, went to this church and just registered Richmond to just take, you know, can we get him in the program? And he wasn't really into the thing, and so he wasn't going very consistently, and he wasn't really showing up at his classes, and he... And, you know, if you don't show up a lot, you can't stand the program. And, and not too long after he was there, he gets a notification that he was sponsored by this woman who was at a church service or a concert something in Kansas. And this is the way Richmond says it. She says, she wrote to me a lot. And the letters were very long. And at the end of each of these letters, she would say, Richmond, I love you and I'm praying for you. He said, I didn't understand that. I'd never really heard someone say that, much less some stranger in America, you love me. I don't know what that... But she said it over and over. And I love this. He says, she wore me out. <laughs> and isn't that just the love of Jesus? Doesn't that happen that way? Man, it's never the first time he kicks your door in. It's the 19th time he kicks your door and you're like, all right, Lord. She wore me out. He began to think to himself, there's something about the love of this woman. If she's serious and... if." If she really loves me and she's providing for, for me to get this education and to get fed every day and, and now I'm hearing every time I'm at this church about the love of this God and, and maybe there's something, if there's something that her love, maybe there's something real about the love of this God and if that's true, then I want that for my life. And so Richmond, the young age of like nine or so, made a decision to follow Jesus. And it happens quite a bit. Last year, 130,000 children made a decision to follow Christ in Compassion Programs worldwide. 130,000 kids is quite a bit. So he decided, well, if I'm going to follow this Jesus person. I'm, I might as well apply myself. So he started applying himself in school. It turns out he's a pretty bright kid. Not only did he do well, he graduated. He graduated, in fact, at the top of his class, qualified and received a scholarship to college. He went to college at the Uganda Christian University, several miles from where he lives. He did, in fact, so well at Uganda Christian University, he graduated in three years. They asked him to stay on and be a teacher. You know you're good if they ask you to stay. And the story would be great if it ended there, but the grace of God is not just sufficient, it is abundant. So this kid realizing, I've got quite a bit to offer the world, applies for, qualifies for, and receives this other scholarship, and this is where this picture comes from. He is currently studying at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois, where he is once again performing at the top of his class. So what are you studying for? What are you going to do, Richmond? This is what he says to me. He says, well, I'm going to become a pastor. So that I can go back to Uganda and plant churches all over my nation and let them know that they are not forgotten by God. 
He says, when I, was, when, when, I got to, when I got to Moody, they gave me my living stipend. And if you've been to college or you know a college student, living stipend is not a whole lot of money. He says, look down the, the amount they were giving me and what I needed. And I realized, hear this from this kid's perspective. I realized I could make some sacrifices. Sacrifices that would add up to about $38 a month so that I could sponsor a boy in the village that I came from. Man, that's what the whole program is about. Because this kid's life screams the goodness of God. I cannot possibly imagine being a non-believer and hearing the story and thinking that there's anything other than love in the heart of God. It's a picture of what the resurrection of Christ looks like in every li- everyday life. is reaching into the darkest places and saying, Christ is still king here. So I want to invite you guys this morning to enter into this process, to enter into this story. And to say with our lives, to say with our time, to say with letter writing, to say with our wallets, to say we believe in the goodness of God and that it is better than what's wrong with the world. So I'm going to play one, this one last song. I'd love for you to consider sponsorship as I do. If you decide to sponsor a child today, and I'm just, just a quick little note, I'm, I'm just going to give you this uh, little piece of paper with my face on it. That's not true. There's actually a CD in here. Um, and uh, this is a thank you. I believe in this with all my heart. I think it's life-changing for these kids, and I think it's life-changing for us. I think it rearranges the way we see the world. And just as a way of participating with you and sharing this with you, I'll just give you a copy of a CD today to say thanks um, because I think it's good for our hearts to do. So as I played this song, um, please consider uh, sponsoring a child today and entering into this story. I'd forgotten just how sweet your mercies are I'd forgotten just how sweet your mercies are would you remind me Learning to kneel, cry out your name. I am in need of your mercies, Jesus. Despite my pride and my shame, learning to kneel. You've been faithful. In my weakness, Father, your love overwhelms my soul. Yes, I'm learning to need Christ your name. I am in need of your mercies, Jesus. Despite my pride and my shame. This is your party goes like this. I'd forgotten just how sweet your mercies are. Lord. You guys sing that with me. I'd forgotten. Yeah.
I believe with all my heart, because this is the life I'm living into, is that the Lord will never call you to a life and to a work that you can carry and you can finish on your own. But that he'll never call you to a work and to a life that he does not fully intend on finishing through you. That the world would know that the source of our lives is the grace of Christ. And that when we were done with our lives, when we were finished, our lives would have been incredibly victorious and much bigger than we could have done on our own. That our entire lives would be a witness. Yes, this is a great challenge. Global poverty. But the question isn't for us whether or not we believe we can carry it. It's do we believe in the goodness of God to use his people to proclaim his goodness to the world. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it.